Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, get 30, bet get 20, 20, 20, bet get 20, 20, bet get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 31 for July of 2018. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about our favorite couples from contemporary genre shows, and our show topics include the new series Reverie on NBC and the new direction for season three of Preacher on AMC. Yeah, and we've got more AMC content as well in the form of our interview, which is with Sherman Augustus, who plays Nathaniel Moon on Into the Badlands. And for those people who are enjoying that show, you know what a great character he is and and a very entertaining actor to interview as well. So you'll be able to enjoy that later. But just so you know, including the interview, we've got spoilers in pretty much every segment other than our discussion topic today. So if you haven't seen the first couple episodes of Reverie, or if you haven't seen the first three seasons of Into the Badlands or the first two seasons of Preacher, you know, we're going to be going pretty in depth into all those. So just a heads up on that. And for those of you who need to avoid certain topics to avoid spoilers, here are the time codes for today's discussions. Contemporary TV couples. 147. Reverie. 1933. Preacher. 3747. Into the Badlands interview. 5456. All right, we've got a spoiler-free discussion topic for you, of course, as always. We're going to be talking about the genre couples we love. And before we dive into that, I do want to mention our last topic last month was female showrunners in the genre field. And we actually left out a couple of really great ones that I just wanted to mention. And that's inevitable when you have a discussion topic like that, that you're going to leave out someone. But I couldn't believe that I left out Sarah Gamble, who we've actually interviewed on this podcast. She does The Magicians, of course, and also was doing Supernatural. So she could almost qualify for the other double showrunner category as well. And then Leda Calogritis recently wowed us with Altered Carbon. And of course, Amy Berg is right up there. I think she's a co-showrunner of Counterpart on stars. So uh, that was another one that I felt needed to mention. But the interesting thing, Dave, with this topic we're doing this month, genre couples we love is I put it out on Twitter that we were doing the contemporary ships. What are your favorites? And somebody tweeted at me that their favorite ships were from Firefly and, and Star Trek. <laughs> like, oops, not that kind of ship. Oh, <laughs> you know what? When you said that, because I know it, it has come up, about contemporary couples because people wanted to go back and and like you you know i thought you were going to say you know malcolm and inara from firefly but you meant the actual ship <laughs> yeah well there were also some people who uh went into the vault unknowingly and and i think it was just because i tried to sort of unfairly narrow it down to make it a little bit more challenging to come up with the best of the contemporary ones from shows that have 
uh, recently been canceled or are currently airing, not going back to like, you know, Aaron's son and John Crichton or something like that. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, why don't I go ahead and start us off and my three this month are all over the map. I've got one that I think is pretty obvious. I've got one that's maybe not so obvious and, and maybe not even in the top three couples from that show. And then I've got one that I understand some people might go, huh? <laughs> yeah. I'm excited to hear what you got, <laughs> but I'm going to start with the show, the hundred, and I'm not going to talk about bell arc Bellamy and Clark. I'm not going to talk about Monty and Harper. I'm not going to talk about Brian and Miller. I'm going with John Murphy and Imori. Oh, very interesting. John Murphy played by Richard Harmon, who you and I got to know from Continuum and his character, Julian Randall, who's very much like John Murphy. Uh, Imori played by Louisa de Oliveira. And I guess what I love about these two is, number one, they're, they're so much edgier than the other couple's. And whether they appear together or separately, there's just something about them that that I really like. And, of course, in uh, Murphy's case, love to hate sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) But there's also that cross-cultural angle. He's a member of Sky Crew. She's a grounder. Both are outcasts, though for her it was a physical deformity that that got a little bit of play when her character was first introduced, but really has been out of the picture. Of course, his deformity is his personality issue. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, I mean, Murphy does his best to piss people off while Imori works hard at fitting in and making herself useful. No more so than when they're in space for the uh, I believe it was seven years. Now, I can't remember whether it was six or seven years. But despite the fact that she grew up on the ground, she uses her time in space to gain more technical expertise and. What ends up happening is that he is, I guess, somehow offended or intimidated by her desire to better herself, and they end up splitting apart in space. So now that they're back on the ground, they're sort of together again. I mean, they're physically together at this point in the show. Okay, good. But whether or not they're going to remain a couple, and I guess that's what I like about them, too, is that the on again, off again. Yeah, that can be a fun dynamic to play with with these so that there's a little bit more interest, especially there's nothing better than the couple when it, when they make up, right? Right. It's a height of the romance sometimes. And in fact, that certainly has happened with my first choice, and that is Fitz Simmons, a.k.a. Leopold Fitz and Gemma Simmons from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. This is just one of those couples that's inseparable in fandom's mind and they are on again, off again, but not always by choice. And in fact, we saw Fitz nearly give his life for Simmons in season one, back when it was kind of a one-sided relationship where he was kind of pining after her and she had no idea that he felt that way. And then because he did that, he was kind of damaged in season two. But I think it was right towards the end of the second season that he got Gemma to agree to a date just before she was swept away by a monolith very mysteriously uh, where we had to wait all hiatus long to know what had happened to her. And and that was when we first started to realize that these two are kind of doomed. <laughs> In fact, I think Fitz says that quite a bit throughout the series, that fate almost doesn't want them to be together. And then when he rescued her from Mavith in season three, I think that was the time where I, you could really see his dedication, where everyone else had given her up for dead. 
he refused to give up. And I loved that aspect of their relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, there's nothing I think that speaks to their relationship more so than his favorite sandwich, prosciutto and mozzarella. Yeah. With just a hint of pesto. Pesto aioli. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I know. It's nice to have those little touchstones for a relationship that uh, shippers can glom onto. And of course, you know, it was her turn to help him in season four when she pulled him out of the framework. But then the guilt he felt from that had to be overcome. And they finally got married in season five, except after the events of the season five finale, Fitz won't remember that marriage. <laughs> For those of you who have seen the show, they you know what I'm talking about. But part of what makes this couple work is just the stellar acting from both Elizabeth Henstridge and Ian DeCastiger. The nerdiness of the couple, the humor that they both have, the genius in creating different gadgets and, and helping the team out, just all works together to make this couple work really well. All right. Speaking of great acting, my next couple is more traditional and it's from the show Outlander and the characters of Jamie Frazier and Claire Frazier. Jamie played by Sam Hugan, Claire by Katrina Balf. And it's on the one hand, you could certainly view it as this epic romantic tale, which, of course, it is. But, hey, you and I both know it's a time travel story. Right. So, yeah, all kinds of different things can get introduced into the mix. Right. And I mentioned about uh, Murphy and Imori in the cross-cultural angle. Well, she's from 1946. He's from the 1700s. And in terms of their culture and, and certainly just the role of women in her day compared to the role of women in the 1700s, which is where she finds herself at the beginning of the story, it's just fascinating the way the two of them connect. And when we see how they meet and how their relationship develops, it's just really a wonderful story. I love the fact that even though she's experienced the horrors of war because she was a nurse during World War II, and that's sort of how we're introduced to her, she's ultimately ending up in the medical role back then, but she's got to be careful not to give away the knowledge that she's gained from the 250 years or so that medicines had to advance. But she fundamentally changes as a result of her relationship with Jamie, as of course does he as well. And, and he's a really good man who makes the choice that the end justifies the means. And it's something that she struggles with at the beginning of their relationship, but she kind of comes on board as well. And their relationship is all over the place. They've certainly had their ups and downs, mostly ups, but just, I don't know, a wonderful couple, great acting. Ronald D. Moore is the showrunner and the man behind the show. And we certainly know him from Battlestar Galactica. It's just amazing show. Yeah. And of course the relationship of those two is core to the show. It's really, especially the book that it's based on, that really is the story. So some of these are on the periphery, but that one is really at the heart of Outlander. And uh, since you're talking about time travel couples, I have two that I want to bring up because I just couldn't decide between Timeless, which has Wyatt and Lucy, and 12 Monkeys, which is just wrapping up its series finale, gosh, tomorrow as we're recording this, 
and 12 monkeys has Cassie Rayleigh and James Cole as the core couple in that show. And they're very different, but because they both came from time travel shows, I kind of put them on the same tier. Wyatt and Lucy, since timeless was just recently canceled, their relationship was sort of over before it even started because they did get to have a moment of bliss in 1920s Hollywood before returning to the present. But then they discovered that somehow Wyatt's wife, Jessica, who in season one, he sought to save using time travel. She had died in a car accident was now back from the dead suddenly. And they weren't sure how, but of course that threw a wrench in the works for Wyatt and Lucy kindling a relationship. And unfortunately we didn't get to see much more of that as the show got canceled. So that's why I decided to add into the mix Cassie and Cole from 12 monkeys since they have their relationship coming to a head here in the series finale coming up and Cole and Cassie in season one, they became closer and closer then were separated by differences of opinion about the mission in season two. And then two years of bliss in the 1950s during which Cassie became pregnant. That was really their moment to shine and some great couples moments from that. Now this isn't a couple that ever really has had a full blown relationship. They've kind of, struggled to come together and haven't had enough time. And now they're finally running out of time in season four, but have been sharing some intimacy late in the season. And in fact, there was some kind of some sexy times going on in a recent episode. So hopefully they'll get their happy ending this weekend. (laughs) Now, am I to understand that the nine episodes I have built up on my DVR, that's not it. I'm getting more. There's one more 90 minute episode. Wow. Okay. The series finale, which is basically like a giant movie. <laughs> it's coming out on the uh, 6th of July. Okay. Now, the other thing that came to mind as you were talking about those two is that there's a lot of overlap here. Uh, one of the couples from Timeless that I would have considered Rufus and Gia. And of course, Rufus, played oh, by yeah. Malcolm Barrett, is going to show up in our discussion of Preacher. Right. Graham McTavish, who is an outlander, he's not appeared yet this season in Preacher, but he undoubtedly will. His name certainly is splashed among the credits. So, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, because we've interviewed both of them for the podcast, too. So that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Now, my third couple is the one that I initially said people might go, huh? Okay. (laughs) And it's from Westworld, Teddy and Dolores. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Teddy played by James Marston, Dolores by Evan Rachel Wood. And I guess what I find fascinating is this artificial intelligence search for self, which is a topic Wayne and I are going to talk about on Sci-Fi TV Rewatch pretty soon. But with the two of them, and we understand that they were programmed initially to like each other. But as we see in season two, they've both become aware of who and what they really are. And unfortunately, Dolores becomes maybe a little too aware and changes Teddy into this ruthless killer. She says, and in her mind, to save him because she doesn't think he really has what it takes. But it's really arguably one of the most heartbreaking decisions she makes. And it's not clear whether or not she understands the choice she's made with him, which to me makes that decision and their... uh, I guess coupleness <laughs> just even more fascinating. Well, I almost felt like it was manipulative in a way and that he was kind of doing whatever she said because he thought she knew better. So yeah, it's, it's interesting to decide for yourself 
what's at play in terms of the emotions, especially when we're dealing with machines that have just become aware of emotions. Right. And whether it's this show or humans, which is certainly exploring the same types of ideas, it's almost as if she thinks nothing's going to change between the two of them, despite what she's done to him. Yeah, perhaps naively so. Yes. So Teddy Dolores Westworld. Okay. And I'm going to end up with perhaps one that some of our listeners think a very obvious choice that must be included on this list. And that is from Winona Earp, Waverly and Nicole, also known as way hot since officer hot is, is that's her last name coincidentally enough, which I always thought was kind of weird when when I first tuned into Winona Earp that her last name was hot, but it works well for the ship name. And Officer Hot immediately was attracted to Waverly very early on, but Winona's baby sister has been dating guys exclusively, although, you know, they were knuckleheads like Champ when they first started the series, but it doesn't take long for the sparks to fly between these two. And after a few false starts, they took the plunge with their first kiss at the police station. And then we do have a close call when the recently resurrected Earp sister, Willa, shoots Nicole, but... Surprise, she's wearing a bulletproof vest, so crisis averted for (laughs) way hot fans. Now, as Nicole's stature in the police department and the black badge grows as the seasons go on, it's going to be interesting to see how this show plays the relationship between these two while she's on the job. And, you know, they've got a job to do between the two of them being on Team Earp. So it's still a burgeoning relationship, but it's had its great moments especially for those in the LGBTQ community. And the representation has been pretty fierce in in terms of the fandom, just really, really buying into this ship in particular as a core part of their enjoyment of the show. Yeah. And, you know, I understand that Winona Earp has a lighter touch to it and that's part of the show's charm. But, you know, what you mentioned about on the job and, you know, showing their affection, you know, I really hope they don't go there because I think it would be great to see Nicole Hot rise up in the chain of command at the police station and she needs to be setting an example. You can't have your officers acting romantically on the job. So it'll be interesting to see what they do there. I was watching an interview with the two of them on YouTube today. Oh my God. I I don't know which one I love more. (laughs) Yeah. They're so adorable. (laughs) And then just a final thing. I I saw a video of a young woman. I think she's Australian. It could have been New Zealand. I don't know, but she's got a theory that the two of them are engaged and she had all sorts of screenshots that Nicole was wearing. I think it was Nicole or Maybe it was Waverly had a ring on her left ring finger and it was just, it was awesome. (laughs) They're playing with the fans. It was awesome. A great one to end on. Um, I'm sure people have some out there and on social media, Ken chimed in with his choices. He said, uh, Rick and I'm not sure how to pronounce Michonne because I don't watch the walking dead, but I think that ship name is Rishon or something like that. And he also mentioned Colin Cassie from 12 monkeys Linda, whose idea it was to do this discussion topic, brought up not only Lyatt, which is Lucy and Wyatt from Timeless, but also Garcy, which is Garcia and Lucy, which just started to get going in season two. It wasn't a very popular ship, but apparently Linda enjoyed that one. And of course, she also chose relationships in the hundred, but was carefully avoiding the same way you did some of the more controversial ones. She just said she liked the hundred for its relationships in general. 
And then uh, Kevin, before he realized we weren't going into the vault, did mention Aaron's son and John Crichton. So <laughs> thanks to, to those of you who chimed in on social media for our discussion topic. And we'll hopefully have a good one for you next month as well. But let's go ahead and dive into our show topics. This first one is an interesting one, Dave. You're talking about Reverie, which has a few connections to our past enjoyment in the genre field, correct? That's correct. It was created by Mickey Fisher, who you and I know from Extent, and we did a podcast for Gold Spiral Media about the two seasons of that show. And then, of course, he was a guiding force in the Nat Geo series, Mars. But Reveries on NBC, Wednesday nights at 10 o'clock. And on the one hand, 10 o'clock is usually reserved for edgier shows. And I don't necessarily see the edginess here, which is fine. I just wonder why they put it on at 10, but I guess everybody's at least happy that it's got a slot somewhere. Yeah. Well, that that makes you wonder if it's going to be long-lived. It's like you got to give it a chance to breathe here a little bit when it's getting started, but we'll see. Right. Now, we're going to talk about the first five episodes, and to be honest, we're not going to spoil all that much. I think we can talk a lot about the characters without giving too much away. Episode 101, Apertus, aired on May 30th, 2018, and the show has a 10-episode order. You and I have been doing this for over six years now, and we don't have a lot of confidence in sci-fi genre shows that end up on NBC. Or on broadcast television in general sometimes. (laughs) Exactly. So whether this is going to end up being one and done or not remains to be seen, but It's an interesting premise that, let me get this out of the way now, for my taste, it really has a procedural case of the week structure. And even though each week does have a subtle twist to it, and and there are clearly several compelling story arcs in play, the show's strength lies in its casting for me. And one of the things that I really have found, especially about the pilot and the fact that it does seem to be procedural in nature is that it becomes accessible to a broader audience and goodness knows procedurals are extremely popular on television today well there's been a bunch of attempts to do this everyone's trying to find the magical mix between episodic television that has an underlying mythology to hook in those people who like serial shows and have it be something you can tune into at any time and get caught up very easily. And it has the benefit of, of having as its star, Sarah Shahi, who was a favorite recurring character in person of interest, which was a successful mixture of procedural and genre on CBS that ran for many years. So I think they're trying to capitalize on Sarah's involvement in the cast. And she's obviously a great addition to the cast, but also, you know, how can we make another person of interest? How can we make another hybrid that will appeal to casual audiences and hardcore audiences alike. Right. And it's very difficult because there is that mythology that really helps that immersive experience that the viewer gets. But that said, Onira Tech is this company that's developed Reverie, which is a software program that creates an immersive virtual reality. And then what we find out is that Reverie 2.0 while it's off the drawing board, it's not been released to the public. It's been designed as a multi-user software. And what it allows Mara to do, Sarah Shahi's character, 
is to go into the reality of coma victims with the intention of bringing them back to life. Now, that leads into the core problem of the pilot, which is that seven Reverie users have apparently severed ties with the real world and now lie in comas threatening the viability of Reverie and Oniratech. Mara's brought on board to try to bring them back and more cases are cropping up all the time. So it's certainly got the potential for that evil corp. It's a compelling hook, the the idea that these people are trapped and she has to go in, especially since she's a, a former hostage negotiator. She's got the skills to talk to these people down from the ledge, so to speak. <laughs> right. Now, I think the first question we need to answer, how does reverie work? Users upload photos, videos, social media posts, anything related to their lives and the people in them. And then that allows the software to create a virtual environment. Now, Black Mirror kind of explored this concept in an episode, I believe, from its first season. I I could be wrong about that. The user then connects via an implanted BCI, brain-computer interface, and what you'll see is that they basically are using what looks to be some sort of a tablet, an iPad, if you will. And the episode title, Apertus, refers to the word that the person would speak to enter the virtual reality, the trigger word. So for me, anytime I, I take a look at a new show, the first thing I've got to decide is whether or not I like the characters and the actors. And Michael, I got to tell you, I like everybody in this show. Yeah, I agree. I think they did a great job of casting. And in fact, sometimes their characters and their acting overcome some pretty obvious flaws. But because her character is who she is and she's acted by Sarah Shahi, I think it goes a long way towards glossing over those flaws. Right. And, and it's that combination of the character and the actor because as I've mentioned to you several times, one of the difficulties I had with The Expanse was I just never really felt a connection to the actors, let alone the characters. But uh, you'll be happy to know that all changed. And <laughs> good. <laughs> I'm all caught up, ready to get my Amazon account. <laughs> now, Reverie doesn't ignore the inherent dangers of the technology, but it also explores the good that can come with an immersion in a virtual situation. And certainly virtual realities have been used as training tools. We're all aware of that, but we also are aware of that in the future, these immersive, totally immersive technologies like we see in reverie are likely going to be used more for sexual escapades, yeah. a West world, allowing the user to play out violent tendencies with no consequences. I mean, I mean, we always end up there. So <laughs> yeah, it's like that song. The internet is for porn. <laughs> exactly. Now the individuals that form the procedural aspect of the show have essentially been trapped between fantasy and reality. And, and one of the things that's interesting, some seem deliberate, others accidental and one of the questions that does come up, why do individuals seek out the reverie experience? You, you know, when you look at a book and then later the movie Ready Player One, that virtual reality is worldwide. It's almost like the Internet 
that's expanded exponentially and, and everyone's doing it <laughs> everyone's doing it whereas reverie is still at its nascent stage and even though one of the creators wants to take it worldwide it's certainly not in the same way so answering that question why do individuals seek out reverie a lot of different reasons relive an experience with a dead loved one search for the father you never knew do something for somebody that has no recourse and certainly one of the questions that always comes up in virtual reality situations if you get shot in the virtual reality how does that impact you in the real world and and we don't have an answer yet to that question no oh, that's kind of intriguing okay now, Michael, I know you were probably shocked that the Department of Defense has a vested interest in reverie. <laughs> they always want to know the defense applications. Yeah, but <laughs> at this point, we don't know the extent of its involvement outside of the fact that they are 30% invested in the company. At the beginning, they simply hover in the shadows, peeking out every once in a while to make veiled threats. We expect results. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But one of the things that caught my attention early on is that it seems as if a lot of the players at Onira Tech are operating out of some level of guilt. You know, did Lexi design Reverie and the AI Dylan to compensate for her brother's death? Why does Mara continue to see her dead niece Bryn, even though she knows that there is an option to make the visions go away? Well, and also, isn't it an element of alcoholism or something going on with her. It, it, there is. And you know, one of the, I guess, criticisms I would have of the show. And I think you could argue that, well, they only have 10 episodes. They've got to move it along at a rapid clip, but I didn't like the fact that Mara Kent, Sarah Shahi's character, right from the start, we see her in her college classroom, downing pills, taking a swig from the bottle before her class comes in. All right, fine. We've established the damaged hero because that's what she's going to end up being. I would have liked to have seen that develop a little more organically along the way. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a trope, right? Exactly. And we see even in the pilot, we see her flushing her pills down the toilet almost as if it's too easy. Oh, for sure. I, I, that's the first thing I thought was that just because she was motivated by this new job with rescuing people from reverie all of a sudden she's able to kick the habit. That's a little bit too simplistic. Right. And maybe she will struggle down the road, but like we said, we're five episodes in and we're not really seeing that. I mean, her yeah. struggle at this point is the visions of her dead niece, but Mara's is a former police hostage negotiator. Who's now teaching a college class in communication. And she's approached by her former boss played by dennis haysbert and his character's charlie ventana another great casting choice. oh my gosh <laughs> and for her this offer to work with him at onira tech is a second chance because i mentioned she was a hostage negotiator and when we explore how she got to this point in her life she was unable to talk her brother-in-law down before he killed his wife daughter and then ultimately himself so we understand how she got to that point now i loved her sherlock like skill in noticing the small yet meaningful details understanding their meaning within the broader context and she's successful because she's able to make a human connection and my question is whether or not she's going to be able to keep this up week after week 
drawing on the experience with her brother-in-law, sister, and dead niece. Yeah. Will it become too much the episode of the week, or will we see some development, not only for the mythology, but for the character, too? Now, Paul Hammond designs the virtual experiences in Reverie, and I think most viewers are going to immediately recognize him from Heroes, the actor Sendil Ramamurthy, one of the only characters in Heroes that I really liked. Yeah, I liked him very much early on. In fact, I felt he changed too quickly in that show to a villain. But yeah, great actor. Right. And aside from his role as the designer of the virtual experiences, he's the personable, the human side of the design team in stark contrast to Lexi, who we'll talk about in a second. He takes Mara into one of his reveries and shows her around almost as if to sell the concept to her, which I think really he needed to do. And he tells her that this is how he treats his own anxiety and panic attacks, showing us that there really can be a therapeutic aspect of reverie and that it's not going to just simply be for fun and recreation. Now, we mentioned Dennis Haysbert from 24 playing Charlie Ventana, the former police chief who's opened his own security company with only one client, Onira Tech. And I know you were a 24 fan and I didn't make it through the entire series, but just like Doctor Who, where everybody has their doctor, even though he was the first, he's still my president from 24. (laughs) Yeah. And he was great in Incorporated, a sci-fi show that only lasted one season too. So I'm glad to see he's got another genre show going. He's building up a little bit of a portfolio in that sense. Right. Now, Lexi Barrett, played by Jessica Liu, wrote the core program of Reverie, and she is this really interesting character. I mentioned in contrast to Paul Hammond, she places herself almost on self-imposed exile. She's a self-sheltered nerd. I mean, it's like she chooses to not go out in the real world unless she absolutely has to. And the interesting thing is she doesn't see reverie as an escape. She calls it a bridge to understanding other people. And her goal is to have everyone in the world experience it. And it's really, I don't want to say funny, but given how kind of nasty she is to most people and, and granted, she just doesn't have those people skills, I guess, She's really stressing out over a presentation to investors, a presentation that, by all accounts, really Paul Hammond should be giving. But they understand that the people with the money want to talk to the person behind the technology. Yeah, the tech nerd character, she definitely has a different spin on it. So she doesn't fall into kind of like the trope character that we would see in this role. But yeah, another great minor role being played by a very likable actor and character. Right. Now, you mentioned the word trope. And then, again, there are a lot of things in this show that could be considered trope. And the Onira Tech Buildings AI, which is based on Lexi's brother, Dylan, played by Kai Scott, at this point, unseen, yet still an integral cast member. And it'll be interesting to see how they handle this and you know will this ai learn as it interacts with all of these people pretty fascinating and then finally the dod representative monica shaw played by katherine morris of cold case which was a show that i talk about procedurals and me not liking that was one that i really got into 
Yeah, that, that had its charms, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we find out that the DOD owns 30% of Onira Tech. What they plan to do with it, we don't know at this point. And uh, I'm sure they're not going to be telling anytime soon. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, and now... We could go through the episodes real quickly. I mean, we see a character that's been isolated, disconnected from family and friends. And inside Reverie, she's really trying to connect with the father she never knew. Then we see see a guy that's been fired from his job, heavily in debt. And he is using Reverie as an escape. And then, again, I think you could argue that this is a little trope element as well. Uh, we find the character Oliver Hill, who claims he's one of the two founding partners of Reverie, but he got pushed aside as, as the company went to uh, a more public face. But I, I think there's a lot to like in this show, and I think it's certainly worth giving it a look. I mean, five episodes in, I don't know whether I'm going to continue watching it, but I think that speaks more to the fact that there's just so much out there my goodness i've still got nine <laughs> episodes of 12 monkeys on my dvr that i haven't gotten to yet oh that's criminal <laughs> but i yeah. understand that <laughs> but yeah reverie is just one of those shows that millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You want to succeed, especially since we have that bond with Mickey Fisher. He was nice enough to talk to us on our podcast and Sarah Shahi from person of interest is a, is a favorite of mine as well. So it definitely has some great ingredients and we'll see what happens. We've talked about a couple of NBC and CBS shows that were one and done, including uh, Emerald city and some of the others uh, that haven't necessarily made it, but we still enjoyed them. And you, you always have to give any show three episodes in my opinion, before you can judge it. And first seasons can be tricky and sometimes they get better with age if they survive the difficult uh, cancellation season. So, and, and you know, the thing that I found to be much easier as I navigate the HBO Showtime series where the episodes are 60, 65, sometimes 70 minutes long is that, okay, I can give you five episodes of a 42 to 43 minute show. Okay. That's, That's a doable. Good threshold. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting segue to our second show topic, which is Preacher on AMC, because this is definitely not a show for everybody. And it shouldn't, by all rights, even be a show that I enjoy. But I just love it for some reason. And, and I'm going to go through and t talk about some of the reasons that I've had to come up with as I've analyzed it. 
because it is a comics based show. So for those of you who have been following preacher on AMC, you know that perhaps it's based on a vertigo comic. And I love that particular imprint from DC written by Garth Ennis and drawn by artist Steve Dillon. And this show kind of does its own thing. It has its departures from the comic, but the violence of the show and the casual supernatural elements, which are treated just as though they're normal to real life, make it feel very much like a comic. And I think into the badlands kind of falls into that category too. the other AMC show that we're covering today. But in season one, we found out that the voice of God, which is a kind of a disembodied force known as Genesis has taken flight for some reason. And it's tried to imbue various religious leaders around the world, but they keep exploding every time Genesis tries to imbue its power into them. And it finally settles on this very flawed small town preacher, Jesse Custer played by Dominic Cooper and it sticks. And he starts to learn about this power, what it means. He's not the most virtuous preacher in the world. In fact, I think he's preaching in the small town of Anvil specifically because he has a certain amount of guilt over the death of his father, who was a preacher and much more godly himself. But in the course of the first season, kind of had him discovering this power and there were some angels that were trying to get Genesis back. He reunites with his criminal girlfriend, Tulip, who is played wonderfully by Ruth Nega. And he, apropos of nothing, meets up with a very meta vampire, Cassidy, who's played by Joseph Gilgan. And I, I call him meta because he's very much always referring to pop culture and television and movies and things like that and tying them into what's going on on the screen. And he's a huge reason why I enjoy this show. Now, have you caught any of this show at all, Dave? I have, and I'm caught up. Two episodes have aired in season three as we record this podcast. And yeah, I mean, as you said at the top of the discussion, this is not a show for everybody. It's extremely violent. And and in fact, my wife has grabbed onto the show, walked away from the show, (laughs) come back to the show, watches it with one eye closed and one eye open. And it's just fascinating. I mean, it's it's so quirky. As you said, the characters are just fascinating. But that whole idea that God is missing and it's as if his voice is trying to find somebody to speak to the masses once again. And, and as you said, it settles on Jesse Custer. And some of you guys may know Dominic Cooper from Agent Carter. Ruth Nega, of course, from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and, I don't know, some movie that she got nominated for, the Academy (laughs) Award, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, these three, Dominic Cooper, Ruth Nega, and Joseph Gilgan, are amazing as a trio. The chemistry is just palpable. And like you said, the search for God is what takes up season two, and it recaptures the road trip feel of the comic, because that was kind of absent in season one. And so as the trio searches for the missing God, they're pursued by the saint of killers, played by Graham McTavish, who the angels put on Jesse's trail because they couldn't get the voice of God back from him themselves. So let's get this guy out of hell and send him on his way. He's he's nigh invulnerable. And they promised to reunite the saint of killers with his wife and daughter if he kills Jesse. And this guy is soulless and invulnerable until towards the end of season two, Jesse gives him 1% of his soul 
which is actually very instrumental in season three. And then there's a brief interlude where Jesse and Tulip almost get married. They could have maybe made our ship list at the beginning of the podcast, but it turns out she was already married to a crime boss in new Orleans while Jesse was having his crisis of conscience and becoming a preacher. So there's a lot of backstory going on, not only in season two, but we're also getting a huge amount of backstory about Jesse Custer in season three. And so it's kind of an ongoing thing and really done very well. They don't just do a run of the mill flashback. You know, it's kind of like integrated into the story. Right. And part of his crisis of conscience is the fact that his father, as you mentioned, was the preacher before him and he made a promise to his father. I'm sure he's sorry he ever made that promise to take over the congregation. So he's this reluctant preacher that really doesn't want to do anything more than get back on the road with Tulip. But here they are. That's right. So and and that's what one problem that I think people out there had with Preacher is that in the comic, Jesse Custer is a godly man and he just does bad things. But his his mission was much more righteous. Whereas in this one, he kind of comes across as a selfish prick, (laughs) which I love the fact that in season three, we've had two episodes air so far. Cassidy is really drawing attention to this fact that Jesse's a selfish prick. Why are we following him and doing what he says Tulip? And not to mention he's carrying a torch for Tulip himself anyway. So I like that that's happening. And and that's why I definitely wanted to talk about season three on this podcast, because I think season three is headed in the right direction. But in season two, they, the search for God did draw the attention of an organization known as the grail, which is tasked with protecting Christianity's hold on the world. But they're also ruthless enforcers, almost like an organized crime unit led by this great comically evil character named hair star played by Pip Torrens who realizes Jesse's power and wants him to become the Messiah because the 25th descendant of Jesus who they've kept protected all these years is named Humperdoo and has (laughs) like almost zero intelligence and is quite a simpleton and doesn't really deserve to (laughs) rule over the world in the second coming. So they hatch this plan to have Jesse become the Messiah. But the problem is now that the 1% of his soul has been given to the saint so that he was able to be banished, the voice doesn't work anymore. So now Jesse's having trouble with the voice of God or the Genesis power as it, as it's called. And he has to get that 1% of his soul back so that he can have his mojo back. I kind of like that it's not able to be used this season because it was kind of a, <laughs> deus ex machina sometimes right we did have a false start though in episode two of season three right he he thinks he has it back oh right yeah and and that's what's so great i think the latter half of season two kind of faltered a little bit and got a little stale and especially when the saint of killers was sent back to hell it was kind of anticlimactic but in season three it certainly has gotten off to a great start with like you said tulip thinks he already has his one percent of his soul back when she chases the grail off the property, but he hadn't gotten it back yet after all. Is that the moment you're referring to? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the new story is taking place in Angelville, which is part of Jesse Custer's past. I love this plot line because his grandmother, Marie Langel, very Cajun sounding name is in charge of this tourist trap called Angelville, where as we see through flashbacks, hapless tourists, 
come in to see maybe the crocodile show or the history show and end up getting uh, trapped in the basement to <laughs> be used for their life force to keep Marie Langelle alive. But they also come to her for spells to help them in their lives because she does have a bit of a spell casting ability that helps even some local politicians in one of the flashbacks. So it's something that Jesse was wrapped up in totally as a young man. He was a teenager and he looks like he must have been one of the best recruiters to get people to come to Angerville that there was because after he left for whatever reason, the place fell apart. And now that he's back because he wanted his grandmother to bring Tulip back from the dead as she was shot by the grail members at the end of season two, grandma says, okay, I'll do it, but I'm going to need something in return. And it appears as though she's got some kind of hold over him, keeping him there until he's served some purpose that she has in mind for him. And I think that has something to do with some drops of blood on a handkerchief that he handed to her in payment for bringing Tulip back from the dead. Right. And he's made the fundamental mistake of essentially selling his soul to the devil. In this case, his grandma. Yeah. But she has this New Orleans voodoo. She, but she seems to actually be able to do these things. Yeah, it's definitely a real power that she has. And there's other people that are in the game, too. I mean, I think in season two, Jesse mentioned when he tried to rob the Japanese soul harvesters of some of their wares, (laughs) he mentions that souls are the family business. And at the time, we didn't know what he was talking about. But here we see that the Langelles are just one of more than one family in the area that is in the soul business and the Boyds are their main competition. And I think part of their strategy for escaping his grandmother once Tulip has been resurrected is to sick the Boyds on them, get a little family feud going. But unfortunately it does not work as Jesse finds out the hard way as his grandmother kind of pulls out a voodoo doll kind of thing and, and chokes him for a little bit once she realizes she's been duped. But the interesting thing that I thought for Tulip was that she spent a little time in purgatory, which was brilliantly conceived in the opening episode of season three as a stage play where her mother was turning tricks while she plays with guns in the living room. Her father is just out of prison and they have like a laugh track and applause track as the father tries to get a job and and be respectable, but ends up getting pulled back into a life of crime. So she's kind of reliving her life in purgatory until the spell and some of the things that she loves to draw her back to the living sort of plays out around her. I thought that was a really great way to portray it. I thought it was brilliantly executed. The the visual aspect and appeal of it was just just really, really stunning. What's, What's also great, though, is that they have a little play on the fact that Cassidy is mad that Tulip died in the first place because he was going to use his vampirism to bring her back to life and turn her into a vampire in the process. And we actually saw in season two that that is not all it's cracked up to be. Cassidy has a pretty good grip on it, but that's not the case for every vampire. And so it might have been really bad, but he's mad at Jesse for taking this particular route. And he has feelings for Tulip himself and seems to know her better as he chooses Joni Mitchell's California her favorite song that Jesse doesn't even even seem to be aware of. And there's even a great moment in episode two where Cassidy and Tulip are kind of bonding. And Tulip says, 
I love you, Cassidy, kind of like in a playful manner. But he really, it, it hits him hard when she says that. He, he's really starting to take his crush to a new level. Now, did you notice who one of the members of the family is played by? Oh, uh, yes. There's a couple of new cast members that I really liked. Colin Cunningham. Is that who you were talking about? Absolutely. From Revolution and more recently, Blood Drive, which... A very similar show. Yes. <laughs> in terms of violence. Yeah, he, he is tailor-made for shows like this. And he's a great character who's wrapped up in the Langelles, but also seems to be one of the nicer guys in the family and, and bonds a little bit with Cassidy. And also, we saw, you mentioned that Malcolm Barrett shows up as one of the members of the Grail organization, a minor character, but still a wonderful, you know, unintentionally comic sometimes. I mean, the character is unintentionally comic. Malcolm's very intentionally comic. But yeah, I just love the additions to the cast this year. And speaking of TC and Colin Cunningham bonding with Cassidy, I think what I really need to say about the show is that Joseph Gilgan as Cassidy, to me, is what makes this show worth watching. Not Dominic Cooper, Maybe more so a little bit Ruth Nega, but because I think Jesse Custer as a character suffers somewhat from unlikability, Cassidy is the most likable ne'er-do-well I've seen on TV. Comic relief sometimes, but also very deep as a character. And I just love him, love him, love him. You can watch him forever, especially his pop culture jokes and, and things like that. He just wonderfully delivered. And, you know, the fact that he's a vampire and we, we talk about tropes in the course of various discussions. And obviously we know vampires can't go out in the daylight. Well, he goes out. He just takes a little umbrella and protects <laughs> yeah. himself from the from the sun. And, and and you can catch them every now and then missing a sunbeam or so. But you just kind of be like, that's OK. <laughs> right. But also when Tulip is shot and he wants to turn her as a way of at least bringing her back. And of course he and Jesse ha have the argument that, no, I'm not going to let you do that. Now, of course we don't know what Jesse's plan is. And neither did Cassidy and neither did Cassidy. And I think certainly this was a better option, I, I guess <laughs> in the long run, maybe, but yeah. you don't know because that's the thing only being on episode two, we don't know what the consequences are going to be for Jesse Custer because grandma does not have his best intentions at heart. And even though he's going to try his best to escape, I think he's a little bit beholden because of the blood that he's given her on the handkerchief. She's going to be able to keep him at bay. And I think that's what she was twisting to choke him right. was that handkerchief that had the blood on it. Right. And not to mention the effect of someone actually coming back from the dead. Yeah. There might be some side effects, right? Yeah. Yeah. Especially since Tulip during her time in purgatory, as she was leaving, being called back to the living she had a little vision of a certain God that they've been looking for <laughs> whose message is I'm counting on you to get those sons of bitches. <laughs> and I have no idea what that means. I think we're going to find out who the sons of bitches are, but in the meantime, because of the fact that Tulip stopped him from getting his 1% of soul back from the grill organization, she feels guilt that, she did something wrong just as Cassidy was starting to persuade her that they shouldn't do what Jesse Custer says all the time. And now she's right back in it again, where she feels beholden to him. And we'll have to see because the grail organization is now going to let Jesse stew in his own little hell. According to Hairstar, we're probably going to be with this Angelville plot for at least a few more episodes. 
and trying to get Jesse to escape it, especially since at the end of episode two, Jesse is cleaning up the tombs to bring back Angelville as a tourist attraction. And who's in the tombs, but his vice principal from when he was a teenager, who's been there all those years as a person who didn't make their payments for the spell that Madame Lagelle gave to him. And he's still captured down there. And who now, who knows who else is still down there in the tombs. So I'll have to stay tuned and see how this develops. But preacher, such a great show. It's, it's so unique. And I think AMC really has the corner on unique shows that we don't see anything like it anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, walking dead that they're the original breaking bad <laughs> network. I mean, all kinds of stuff, mad men, another one of my favorites, lots of great stuff on that network. And in fact, that's a great segue into our interview segment because into the badlands is also just a show that you don't see anywhere, not even in movies, a unique blend of Western and Eastern Kung Fu style storytelling, but also post-apocalypse. I mean, it's a great hybrid and we have our interview with one of the characters that has been making at least season three great. And season three is in its mid season hiatus. And so we wanted to talk to Sherman Augustus who plays Nathaniel moon about what we can expect in the second half, the second eight episodes of into the Badlands season three, because we kind of left his character at a real high moment. And Sherman Augustus, who comes from, you know, soaps, he was on American Odyssey. He played some small roles on Westworld and Colony, some genre shows where he just had a one-off appearance. But this character is really something that you can tell in this interview that he really has enjoyed in acting. And as a 59-year-old man kicking some butt, can't argue with the success that he's had. So here's our discussion with Sherman Augustus about season three of Into the Badlands. Well, welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Sherman Augustus. We're so happy to have you. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah. <laughs> into, the, into the Badlands is right in the middle of its mid-season hiatus for season three, and things are just really getting going. Yeah. And we got we to gotta talk a little bit about what's been going on and what we can anticipate. So I'm, I'm anxious to talk about this. <laughs> okay. And I'll try to answer all questions without, you know, revealing too many spoilers because... Uh... You know, I'm always walking it up to the line without, you know, <laughs> and not getting in trouble. I haven't gotten a phone call yet from the from the our showrunner, so we're good. Okay, so go for it. <laughs> All right. Well, you've done everything from soaps to political thrillers, and your fans know what a great actor you are. But oh, thanks, like, guys. like we asked Nick Frost before season two, I mean, we got to know how the producers knew what a badass you could be with a sword, and. As kind of a follow-up to that, what aspects of athletic training that you've gone through in the past help you learn the plays of these choreographed sequences? Okay, one of the things, okay, being an ex-athlete, that works in my corner uh, tremendously. And I started studying martial arts about, um, let's see, I got my, in 1999, I got my my first dance. And before that, you know, I, I was just doing these films where I would uh, do these fight scenes or whatever and have to study with certain uh, masters and, ex- and instructors for certain things. And I kept accumulating these honorary black belt certificates. So one project I worked on was Space Marines and our fight and stunt coordinator was none other than, if you're ready for this, Danny Tan. Oh, OK. Louis <laughs> Tan's dad. 
So the conversation after we shot this big, it took all day to shoot this one fight scene with me and Blake Boyd. He walks up to me and goes, hey, man, you really, 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 really need to get started studying martial arts. And that was in 1996. So from then on, when I wrapped on that film, I started studying and ran into him a couple of years after I got my first Dan. And, you know, I was excited about it. And I, I told him about it. He said, good. Now, this is where the hard work starts, because once folks achieve their black belts, they start slacking off a little bit. <laughs> and then fast forward to recently. I was hanging out with Lewis over Aramis's house. It was a couple of us over there and his dad called. And so he said, listen, I want to tell you, uh, there's only two people that really heeded my word and took up the art and applied it and did something with it. And that's you and Michael Jai White. And I'm like, whoa, OK, well, Michael's a friend and a buddy. And I've been knowing him throughout our whole career as actors. And it just that's good company to be in. So that answers the question. So as far as sword work, I've never picked up a sword until I stepped on the set of Into the Badlands, oddly enough. Never. Never. Well, in that sense, it's probably good that you have other weapons at your disposal, because in some ways, I almost feel like Nathaniel Moon should thank Baji and Sonny for cutting his hand off, because it's quite a weapon, both defensive and offensive, exactly. with its daggers and darts. So can you describe what it's like to fight with that thing? How does that it's, thing It's work? very interesting. Uh, that glove has gone through many changes uh as style wise and everything uh they finally got it correctly that we were all happy with uh towards i would say the last four or five months of uh the shoot uh it was a clip on it was a glove that had the fingers first and then you clipped on the gauntlet and then you clipped on the other part where the uh, other cogs and the butterfly was beautiful detail was beautiful and I usually use that one when I actually have to block a sword or do that kind of stuff where I'm going to use my hand in that gauntlet. But then there's a lighter rubber gauntlet that goes on and a entire glove that goes on. And you can't tell the difference between any of the other other hands, uh, even the one that has the uh, the blade that retracts and goes out and in that whole thing. Those guys did a wonderful job, and they're just they're just pros and, and professionals, and just masters at what they do. And my hats off to the prop master. They're they're just they have everything at their disposal, uh, as far as three D printers, all that stuff is out of a three D printer. They just print them up and just okay, let's try another one. Well, let's try another one. It's really cool. It's really cool. So I like I love that glove, and uh, yes, it does help with everything. I mean, there's so many things that I use that thing for and use it in defensive measure, measures, and you'll see in the second aid. It, it really, really, really comes in handy. It really does. Okay. Now, far from thanking Sonny, Moon comes back to the Badlands in season three specifically to finish the fight right. that Sonny refused to finish. So mm -hmm. why do you think that fight was so important to Moon, both in season two when he first challenges Sonny and then early in season three when he uses it as his reason for staying? Is it got anything to do with the being Ronin? And that's the only way he feels he can deserve to be back in the fight. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. You know, going back when they first met, he was a disgraced runner because remember, he blames himself for his wife and his son being killed. Right. So when he's saying that whole thing, that dialogue between Sonny and Moon, he's still trying to convince himself that it's OK, but it's not OK. So they have that confrontation on the bridge and he notices how good Sonny is. And so he admires his fighting style. He admires his, his technique and goes, OK, well, cool. You know, maybe just maybe, you know, I'll have a conversation with this guy. We'll, we'll go into battle 
And uh, if I kill him, you know, that's a tat. That's, that's part of my, that's my, you know, 1,000 tattoo. And if I do fall, then basically I regain my honor as a clipper, as, as a region, as all those things. My whole thinking and in going into that was if they meet, they meet. And uh, they'll, they'll square their differences then. You know, Sonny, he felt that Sonny disgraced him by not finishing the job. You know, Baji intervened. So there's two people that he needs to, you know, basically take care of it in, in a sense, you know. And, and still, that just drives home more of the, uh, the precedence of him being a disgraced Roman. So even though he comes back and he's a regent, there's still that thing that's hanging over his head. Now, if he falls in battle for the widow, you know, against child, that's fine with him. Again, he regains his honor. But if he runs into Sonny, that whole thing, then we'll, you know, we'll take care of what we need to take care of, if that makes any sense. No, oh, it sure does. And in fact, it creates a great shift for your character because there is a motivation change halfway through the first half of season three. And there's two things I love about, uh, especially for your character, this season of Into the Badlands. One is the the increasing level of diversity right oh yeah of the characters oh, yeah. oh, i mean yeah. it's just great seeing oh, all yeah. the di- different uh, you know it's not just a eastern style yes kung fu movie yes. it's it's sort of a melting pot and i love that and the second thing is that you've got this great dynamic with lydia and i almost feel like this is a stronger motivation mm-hmm. especially in the mid-season finale where moon doesn't want lydia to fight but then she rescues him only to be overwhelmed and wounded herself i mean what a great love story that is exactly and uh when i read that and i i looked at orla and i went oh wow she was i know and it was, it was so cool because it was so cold that day uh, we, we were shooting in a, a quarry uh out in valley horsey it was now i played in some cold weather before but this was like okay i'm going home <laughs> okay <laughs> I'm out of here. And I'm like not going home to Dublin. I'm going to get on a plane and go back to L.A. for a couple of days. And I'll come back because it was that cold. And when we shot that, we shot all the big stuff, all the big battle stuff early that morning. By the time we got to it took like seven days to shoot that. But we shot the bulk of it in one day. And uh, I was there for her eyeline. So I got on blankets and all. I'm just covered up and, you know, just make sure she sees my eyes. And I didn't know what she was going to do. So when she saves me and her horse did the wheelie or did you know and the the, the (laughs) fireball was behind her i was like oh my days that's oh that is so lit it was just it looked beautiful the way they shot it the way paco shot it and i was just like wow man people are gonna lose their stuff when they see this because it was just (laughs) so in the moment and so real and i gotta tell you guys i'm just so lucky to be on that show because for me, I get to hit each and every emotion that any actor or every actor wants to do to show their range. And um, you'll see all that in a second aid. But that day was just awesome. And um, Lydia's ride or die, you know. And I like the fact that the way they're writing her and the way uh, Orla is playing it, that you don't know if she's being sincere or if she's, you know, just looking out for herself. You don't know. I, we addressed that issue in episode, I think it's four, when we're talking and I'm in her office and I said, you're playing a dangerous game, both sides. And she's like, you too. Well, who isn't playing both sides in this show? <laughs> it, yeah, it's just, you know, you know, but the thing about that is everybody has to unlikely alliances are going to happen. I can say that much. I can say that much. 
<laughs> All right. Well, before we get to the back eight and whatever you're able to tell us, I, I, one of the things I love about the post-apocalyptic genre is the fact that the showrunner and the set dressers really have so much freedom how they're going to portray things. So obviously the costumes are a huge part of the show's aesthetic and your outfit and bowler hat, particularly dapper. But what are the challenges of fighting while all dressed up and what do you like best about the retro feel to this post-apocalyptic world? I love it. I mean, the detail in, uh, in Giovanni, Giovanni is, is, is a genius, and I love the simple fact that that costume is, is uh, all our costumes are a cross between a uh, Victorian style and going back to the early Japanese uh, days of feudal Japan, because you can tell in my waistcoat that it wraps like a gi, a uniform. It wraps like that. I even have to fold it a certain way. So the left side has to go across the right, you know, all that kind of stuff. And our show is a cross between a Kurosawa film and a Sergio Leone film. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> if you if you if you get my meaning. Yeah. So it is it's it's those two genres mashed together. And so we play it like, you know, uh, well, I do on my head. I play it like a, a Western, but I also play it like I'm in a Kurosawa film. Every day I go to work, I'm like, oh, man, you know, <laughs> this is cool. And it's just the best stuff. And it, I feel so bad that we have to get it muddy and all that. I'm just like, dude, I'm just messing because I'm, I'm a clothes freak. You know, I'm a clothes and shoe freak, you know, and I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm getting my shit messed up. This is not cool, man. And um, uh, the coat uh, comes in handy because uh, when it's cold, that coat is very heavy and it keeps me pretty much warm. Uh, there's a nice lining inside, but it flows very well. So when we're kicking and, and spinning and stuff, it has a very long split in the back by design in order for us to, because that's one of the main things that Daniel always press upon everybody. We have to be able to move. We got to move. We got to move in it, you know. And it's it's quite comfortable to wear, and I love it. I mean, I I love it. I like. Yeah, I was like, man, I wish I can walk around L.A. like this. <laughs> yeah. I really do. I really wish I can walk into like Barney's in New York, or Barney's New York, and Beverly Hills just roll in like that. That would be awesome. I'm a big steampunk fan, and it reminds me of that. Yes. So. Yeah. It is. It is very much. It is very much steampunk. It is very much. Well, now on. let me share with you my little prediction because <laughs> okay. we have to talk about the back half of season three. Yeah. And I'm thinking that Lydia and Moon could either a become a great Baron team themselves, or if Lydia is telling the truth about wanting to dismantle the whole system, they could figure out something else. But do you picture them being a, a great team? And, and what can you tease about where it's headed? Because that has to be part of it. They are a great team. Uh, what I can tease about that is they get pretty close to achieving that. What jacks up the whole mix, you know, Pilgrim and Black Lotus, they throw a box of tarantulas into the whole machine. Is <laughs> what they do. So a lot of things get put on hold. There's something that's going to go down and they do have to run things for a while. Because I mean, you saw it, you saw you saw the master come in and incapacitate the widow, and this is right after the battle. So Lydia and Moon basically have to uh, they have to take charge of things for a while and they have to handle everything, and it's it's going to be quite interesting. You guys, I think you guys are going to really dig what's going to come up in that next eight between those two. Well, yeah, for the, really for that reason alone, I'm I'm just so glad we got to talk to you because it does seem like 
in season two, I wasn't even sure if your character would show up again. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and you've really had a great rise in season three and, and sounds like you're going to continue that trend. Yeah. Well, that was the whole thing when I introduced my character in uh, season two, episode three, I didn't read the whole script until I got on the plane on my way to Dublin. I got the call on the Thursday. I was on the plane Friday, landed Saturday morning, did the whole rigmarole as far as hair, makeup, wardrobe, fittings, all that stuff. Went through my script on Sunday. I was shooting that bridge scene on Monday and I was like, you know, (laughs) yeah, the one thing that, that just resonated in my mind was when I read the script there for the first time in a long time, the character was developed on the page and all I had to do was just get my my act together. I t- told myself on the, on the flight over, if I can't knock this out the park, then something's wrong with me as, as an actor. Uh, because it was right there on the page. You know, I didn't have to work really hard for anything uh, at that point. It was just there. I didn't have to worry about putting on costume to find that character. I didn't have to worry about getting a haircut or whatever the case may be, you know, to find that guy. That guy was right there on the page. And I was like, whoa, this is awesome. I finally arrived out of 30 something years. I've arrived, you know, somebody, <laughs> you know, and um, he's just a lot of fun to portray. I like his honesty. I like his loyalty. And, you know, it reminds me of the fact that, you know, when I was involved in sports, you know, how you had to be loyal to your teammates. And we may not be friends off the field, but we're going to be friends on this field. And that's how Moon, I feel Moon is. So I adopted that for him. Well, Sherman Augustus, we very much enjoyed talking with you about Into the Badlands. Oh, cool. And we can't wait to Is see that what it? happens. That's that's the that's the game. <laughs> wow, man. That was too fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. We enjoyed it. Uh, no, no problem. Thank you. Appreciate it. And you could tell there at the end, Dave, I guess, that he was surprised that we were already finished interviewing him. I think he could have talked about Nathaniel Moon and Into the Badlands for another hour. <laughs> oh, yeah. And look, we've been blessed to have interviews with some great actors that have been very accommodating very open but there was just something about sherman augustus that uh, as you said he didn't want to stop he wanted to keep talking his enthusiasm is very infectious yes and into the badlands is such a great show if you like game of thrones where like loyalties are always being tested it's got elements of that in it it's got some great fight scenes unequaled anywhere in television and it's just got some really great mythology and characters and i've got a little crush on the widow myself and into the badlands so great lineup of show topics and i hope you enjoyed our discussion topic and interview as well but that's going to be it for this edition of sci-fi fidelity we hope you enjoyed our discussion you can keep it going all month long by following us on social media we're on facebook and twitter as sci-fi fidelity and in august we've got killjoys and castle rock in the mix and perhaps a little winona erp who knows But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we do take suggestions for future topics. Just let us know what you'd like us to talk about on social media or in an email to scififidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.